We're beginning chapter 7 as we uh, take a look at Jesus' words to the disciples describing life in the kingdom of God. So I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Let's turn our hearts as we hear the word of God. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. I want to explore something together, and because we're going to actually take two weeks on this particular passage, and I want to ask the question, How do we interpret the Sermon on the Mount as a whole? Now, here's what I mean by that. That may seem easy to think about at face value. Is the Sermon on the Mount something Jesus actually expects us to obey? Does he expect us to do? Does he really expect us to do what he says here? This actually is more difficult than you think because it's actually been quite hotly debated in the history of interpretation. So, for example, there's one line of interpretation that... And I want to be careful, I don't want to throw it out completely because there's a kernel of truth in it that goes something like this. It says the Sermon on the Mount is a summary of the law of God. So it tells us God's standard for us, his holy, his perfect standard. And he gives us that standard to show us our sinfulness, to show us that there's no way we could ever meet that standard. In other words, it drives, it shows us our need for Jesus so that we will run to him for forgiveness and for salvation, and then live by grace alone. Now, remember I said, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That interpretation has a lot to offer. In fact, theologians throughout the history of the church call that the second use of the law. But I mean, now, and now I'm just being absurdly logical here. If you say something as the second use of the law, that means there's more than one use, doesn't there? I'm being real deep here with that. If you say something is a second, that means there's a first and maybe even a third. There is. So ask the question, did Jesus intend for his disciples to see and that the only purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is for them to see their utter impossibility of keeping it, despair of ever following it and obey it, and simply run to Jesus and then you just kind of set it aside. It's another portion of scripture. It's great, but you never live it out. Think about that. If that was the case, why, in the parallel version of the Sermon on the Mount, found for us in Luke chapter 6, why would Luke record for us the words of Jesus that say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? 
It seems to me Jesus actually expects us to do what he says. Go figure that. He's the Lord and wants us to obey. Now here's the key. How do those two things not contradict each other? Because Jesus is speaking. This is not an evangelistic sermon spoken to those who don't know Jesus, who are not about, this is not about how to get into the kingdom. It's spoken to those who've already seen that they could never earn a righteousness of their own, never keep the standard of God, and who've already fleed to Jesus Christ for salvation, and they're now in the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is describing life to those who are already in the kingdom. In other words, it's saying this is what life in the kingdom looks like. This is what it looks like to see Jesus to savor Jesus, to show Jesus. In other words, it's closer to a description of what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In other words, the great commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, if we could put it simply, the great commandment, I went over this with our leaders this past week, is loving God, loving one another, and loving our community. That's the great commandment. And Jesus says, he, the, the one who loves me, the one who intends to keep my command, he will keep what I command. And the Sermon on the Mount is showing us exactly what that looks like. Which brings me to what I want to focus on this morning. Because I want you to think about chapter 7 and the flow of the passage and just kind of follow this with me. Throughout this passage, Jesus is speaking about relationships, how to love God, how to love one another. In verses 1 through 6, he gives us, he speaks about not judging, seeing your own flaws. Yes, still entering into the lives of others, remove the speck from their own eye. But excuse me, first see the battleship or the aircraft carrier that's in your own eye. But look at that so that you are able to take the speck. So he expects us to hold each other accountable, to enter into each other's lives, to be involved, to do life together. He's talking about, then he talks about this whole don't throw your pearls to pigs and give dogs what's holy. And I don't know about you, but it kind of take, that says to me it takes a little discernment to know that. Okay, which is a holy dog and an unholy dog? What, get, who gets my holy things? Who doesn't get my unholy things? All of that. And then he gives, verse 12, a summary of his entire word, the law, the prophets, when he says, whatever you wish that others would do you, how you want to be treated, guess what? Go and treat other people. Now, here's my question. How do we go about applying all that? How do you know the difference between judging and just entering in? How do you know the log in your own eye? How do you know what is giving a pearl to pigs? How do you know... What is treating others the way you yourself want to be treated? How in the world? We stipulated the fact Jesus expects us and wants us to do this, and we look at this, and this is awful difficult. How in the world do we do it? I started asking myself that question, and this was dangerous. I'd done all the study on the sermon, and all of a sudden, and I hate when this happens to me. Saturday morning, I wake up, and I think I drive my wife crazy. Because I'm asking the question, and I'm even walking around the house going, why did Jesus put verses 7 to 10 there? 
do not judge, don't, you know, the dog's unholy thing. And I'm looking at Calvin and Hobbes, and I'm going, you guys look pretty holy. I don't know. I'll throw you some tidbits. And I'm going all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, smack dab in the middle, you've got this, what at face value, I'm going, why does he talk about ask, seek, and knock? And then it hit me. And I hope it's the Holy Spirit, because I rewrote the whole sermon based on this. <laughs> so let's hope and pray this is of the Holy Spirit. I thought prayer is the key. Prayer is absolutely key. I don't know about you. I don't know always the difference between judging and discerning. I don't have the wisdom to know always what is the log in my own eye. Half the time, I don't even know how I want to be treated, let alone treat others the way I want to be treated. I'm not that smart. And smack dab in the middle of it, Jesus says, ask. And that's not enough. Seek. Still not enough. Knock, pray, pray, and pray some more. In other words, because if we think we have a clue how to love well, we are greater fools than anyone out there. And Jesus says prayer is the key to learning to relate well. Prayer, and we're not talking now about shopping list type of prayer, circumstance type of prayer. But we're talking about what Jack Miller called frontline, kingdom-centered, praying down the power of the kingdom. Think about the implications of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. You are united to Jesus. I say this almost weekly. To be a Christian means you're in Christ. You participate in the divine nature. We are the temple of God. Heaven and earth meet within the glory of the body of Christ. We are the church of the living God. Prayer is the spiritual weapon to call down and appropriate that power, that character change, that Christ-likeness into our lives. Verses 7 and 10 are meant to give us a vision for prayer to actually do the Sermon on the Mount. To act. Who is the one who loves me, the one who keeps my commandments? And Jesus says, I will show myself and manifest myself to him. So I want to give you a vision for prayer this morning. How do we actually do kingdom-centered, front-line, call-down, kingly power into your life? And it seems to me this text teaches us there's two ways. There are two components to doing this. And that is you have to know yourself and you have to know God. You have to really know yourself. And you have to not just know about God, but you have to know God. Okay, let's take a look at this. First of all, knowing yourself. The text before us gives us a progression in prayer, beginning with asking, and then notice each one gets a little deeper. Then it goes on asking to seeking, and then it moves on from seeking and continuing on with knocking. In other words, if I could paraphrase this, pray, keep praying, don't stop praying, don't ever stop praying. It almost sounds like what Paul said, pray without ceasing. In other words, pursue, pursue, pursue. Follow hard after Jesus. Now, I don't know about you. That sounds like work to me. That sounds hard. It sounds demanding. I didn't think the Christian life was supposed to be demanding. I thought it was supposed to be all about grace. Is Jesus contradicting himself here? Is this not grace? What's up, Jesus? What's going on here? Well, let's take a look at this. Paul, the apostle of grace, said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. 
He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is within me. In other words, he seems to be saying that the grace of God is intended to accomplish something. The grace of God, which for what in theology we call justification, is meant to give us such a platform. Think about what justification is, initial salvation is. We are forgiven and we are declared righteous. In other words, we have a status. We have a position before God that can't change. It's irrevocable. We're loved, we're approved, we're accepted. We are actually counted before the very eyes of God. We are counted as righteous. As beautiful as Jesus is, is how God looks at us. And Paul says, that grace toward me is not in vain. It's that grace towards me that leads me to work harder than anybody else to be a fellow laborer, a partner, a co-worker with God in building and advancing and in working for his lordship, his rule, his reign in life. I'm so liberated, I'm so set free that from a spiritual standpoint, I can follow hard after Jesus. The purpose of grace. Now let's begin with some brutal honesty with ourselves. Prayer is hard work. If we're honest with ourselves, we'd have to admit that we'd much rather do anything else than pray. And I don't mean just pray for our family, but pray before interactions with others. To actually, husbands, I'll pick on you for a little bit since we're supposed to actually be the leaders in our home. Do you pray before you come home from work to your wife, knowing you don't have the wisdom to know how to enter into her needs? Do you pray and call down kingly power, knowing you can't just depend on what you said or how you felt or how you entered in yesterday, because she's going to change today? Do you pray knowing you don't have... Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We believe in other literal parts of the Bible. Why don't we believe in that literal part of the Bible? He didn't say, apart from me, you can do 10% of things. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We would much rather do anything else than the hard work of frontline calling down the wisdom of God. See, we're one with Christ. That means God has made available his wisdom to us. We have to appropriate it through prayer. He's made available to us the mind of Christ. You claim it, you possess that possession through prayer. See, we would much rather just study, learn theology, come to a seminar on financial management. Maybe, oh, Jeff's mentioning husbanding. Can I go to the family, you know, seminar, the parenting seminar? Jesus is saying, no, learn to pray. Have you ever struggled with, and I have to admit I sure do all the time, sitting down and struggling to do things like staying awake? Finding as you pray, you drift off. I wonder how the Yankees did today. Hmm. Hey, there's my phone. Oh, back to prayer. Do you ever struggle? Do you ever just, maybe it's our independence, thinking we really can do this thing called life on our own, that we're really not that quite needy and desperate. See, and this brings me to, I think, what is the best commentary in the Gospels on what Jesus is teaching here. The parable of the persistent widow found in Luke chapter 18. Beginning in verse 1, listen to this. It says, Jesus told them a parable. In other words, he told them a story. To the effect, in other words, he's saying, here's why he told them this story. 
told them this story so that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So he tells them right up front, here's the point of the story. You ought always to pray and don't, get, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't despair. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So in other words, this judge is pulling no punches. I don't like God. I don't like people. I don't like my job. I don't like anything. He says, and there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continued coming. I love how the Gospels portray some of these things. Think about this. Here's this judge. He's not righteous. He's not a good guy. I don't want to go before this judge. But yet, look at this woman, the widow. She knows what she wanted, and she wouldn't stop until she got it. Now, I'm going to get more to this point in the next point, but I want you to remember she knew what she wanted. See, we're going to see in our next point that part of our problem is we want the wrong thing. And I want you to pay very careful attention to the scripture Andrew read. He was right. That's a commentary on this. Because in James, James says, you don't have because you don't ask. We get that part. Okay, now all of a sudden we're hearing Jeff's sermon. We're going, okay, I'm going to be like the widow. I'm going to ask. I'm going to seek. I'm going to get. James says, "Um, time out. I'm not done yet. Not finished with you yet. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You don't ask for the right thing. You ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, we ask for what we think makes sense to us. Now let's get back to this widow for a second. See, why was she asking for the right thing? She was asking for the right thing because she knew her desperation. She knew her neediness. See, do you really know yourself? Do I really know myself? Or do we, can we depend on, well, I know the Bible pretty well. I've done this before. I can re- rely on experience. I can skate through. Are we that proud? Are we that arrogant? Let's nod our heads yes. Yes, we are. See, do we really know ourselves? One commentator put it like this. He said, her situation was desperate. As a widow, she was one of the most vulnerable members of society. Therefore, she was entitled to special protection under the law of God, the God who is the defender of widows. Yet when she was attacked by an enemy, no one came to her defense, and since she was too poor to hire a lawyer, she had no one to protect her. Though her cause was righteous, she found herself at the mercy of injustice. Lacking any power or protection, the woman had only one thing going for her, her persistence. See, one of the simple reasons, and we have to face it, I know this is a hard truth, is one of the reasons we don't pray is we're too proud. We are just too arrogant. We don't see our desperateness. See, this woman knew, I'm not leaving this judge's chambers. I'm not le- I have no one out there who's going to take care of me. No, I'm going to persist and persist and persist. See, we go into situations and we think, oh, I can love without praying. I can enter in without praying. I can see the speck in my wife's eye, in my husband's eye, in my fellow, in my children's eye. I can speak them. Oops, what's that aircraft carrier? I can see this. And so we enter into things. We hold people accountable. We think we have the wisdom to apply not judging and loving. We give ourselves far 
too much credit. Do you really know yourself? Before I move on to the next point, I'll just read one, another commentary, and I thought it put it very well. It's kind of a funny little story, but I thought it summed it up well. He says, consider the strange case of this rancher from Powder Bluff, Colorado, who was asked if he wanted to resubscribe to National Geographic magazine. The computer handling the magazine's mailing list malfunctioned and generated 9,734 separate, separate renewal notices. The rancher couldn't resist. He throws up the white flag. He travels 10 miles to the nearest post office, writes a check, sends it in to renew his subscription, along with a little note that says, I give up. Send me your magazine. <laughs> Ask, seek, and knock. Did God give you his grace just to sit on the Titanic and go, interesting, my neighbors are drowning. Glad I'm not going to. <laughs> or was the grace of God given to you so that you could know Jesus, which is eternal life, that you could follow hard after him, that you could be a reflection of the glory of God, a light to the nations, be a true image bearer. Prayer is the way to call down that power and live a supernatural life. There are no shortcuts. But it's not enough to know ourselves. We have to know God. And that brings us to the second point. Look with me back at the text. The first point, ask, seek, and knock. We get that. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. And then Jesus introduces us to the character, the beauty of God. And he, like he always does, he contrasts it to things in ordinary life, being a dad, being a mom, being a parent. He says, which one of you, if... Your son were to ask you for bread, we'll give him a stone. I mean, even I'm smart enough to know when Joel came to me as a kid and asked for Nintendo, I didn't sit there and say, here's your stone. If he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. He says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And again, remember, remember James. We get that good things, and I know what we're thinking. Remember what James said. We ask and do not receive because we ask wrongly. So in Luke, you get this version in Luke chapter 11. Again, right after, ask, it will be given to you, seek, and you will find, knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. To the one who knocks, it will be open. Jesus says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Did you notice the difference there? Are you sitting here going, oh, Luke must have got it wrong. He didn't hear rightly. Remember earlier we mentioned the fact that you don't have because you don't ask and you don't receive when you ask because you ask wrongly? I've shared this with you before, but Tim Keller puts it this way. Tim Keller writes, he says, I really think when it comes to prayer, we don't so much doubt God's power as we doubt God's goodness, his willingness to bless us, his willingness to give to us. What we really need here, Tim Keller calls it a healing of perspective. And then he says, how do we know our perspective is off and we need a corrected, healed perspective? 
He says, look at this. He says, imagine a conversation between you and Jesus. Jesus comes up to you and he says, child, go ahead, ask for anything. Ask for the moon. Ask for the stars. Dream big. You're not dream big enough. Dream even bigger. Be creative. Be imaginative. I want to bless you. I want to give to you. I want to knock your socks off. Ask for the greatest, most wonderful, most incredible thing you can imagine. Don't be afraid. Grace, I'm going to give it to you. And you say, your eyes get wide. You say, really? Ask for anything? And he says, yes, go ahead. For example, ask for the Holy Spirit. And you go, huh? And why do you go, oh? You need a healed perspective. He said, ask for the Holy Spirit. Ask for more character. Ask for joy. What is the fruit of the Spirit? See, think about this text. If you, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? See, do you really know God? Do you know that God wants to give you his Spirit? Wants to be generous? is willing. He's saying, how much more? I am generous to give you that which will produce. Look at the fruit of the Spirit. It is love. It is joy. It is peace. It is patience. It's long-suffering. It is kindness. It is goodness. It is faithfulness. It is gentleness. It is self-control. He wants to give you the very personality. He wants the church to be the living, walking, breathing personality of Jesus Christ on the earth. And he's willing to give it to you. You don't have because you don't ask. How is it with your prayer life? Do you know how convicted I am in terms of just looking at the theology of here? See, we'll we'll dissect judge not lest you be judged next week. But this week, I just want to show you how it connects. The way to love. The way to live is prayer. Calling down kingdom power in your life. See, if we had this kind of vision of God, we would see his generosity, his willingness to give us the Holy Spirit to enable and empower us to do what he says is the great commandment. Love God, love one another, and love our community. But we really don't think that highly of God, do we? One of the men who's influenced me the most in my life is a man I've never met before. His name is Jack Miller. Jack Miller was the former pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia in the 1970s and 80s. And he he taught at Westminster Seminary where I went to school. And he also started World Harvest Mission. But in his book, Outgrowing the Ingrown Church... He tells of a story, pretty much the darkest days of his life, where he was just simply fed up, ready to give up. And he abruptly was tired of the lack of transformation in his life, the lack of transformation in people's lives, and he had had it. He was done. And he went in, and he abruptly gave in his resignation to the church, gave in his resignation to the seminary. He says, I quit. I'm done. And somebody, and I have no idea who, lovingly gave him a place to stay. He and his wife, Rosemary, a place to stay. I like this part. On the Mediterranean in Barcelona, where they could get, if you want to get away, that's not a bad place to get away. 
And Jack Miller's testimony is, he says, I sucked on the promises of God like a pig. He said, I was a little piglet sucking on my mother, and I was sucking on the promises of God like a pig. And he says he came back with a deep, thoroughgoing repentance, recognizing the problem was not everybody else. The problem was me. And it was a deep repentance in his life. So that when he came back and he began ministry again, the seminary graciously took him back. His church graciously took him back. He planted New Life Presbyterian Church. And he ended up, and there were testimonies given as of months and years went by, of things like elders converting, recognizing they had never understood the gospel never deeply saw their need and a deeply repentance and grabbed on through the provision and the power of the grace of God. There were seminary students becoming converted, not simply by the preaching, but through Jack's prayers. I remember reading this years ago, and as I go back to it, and I go back to it time and time again, it's one of, I have very few books I'm not willing to lend out. This is one of them. And I sit there and I go, holy cow, what is your functional view of God? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more is God willing as a good father to give the Holy Spirit to know themselves to be desperate, like the widow, who truly know themselves, who know themselves as hiding behind masks, as being defensive, as being proud, as being insecure, as not loving as well as they think they do. And know that apart from Jesus, they can't even speak a word of life into somebody else. So they're that dependent that they have to suck on the promises of God like a pig. And they're willing then repentance to turn as a way of life. What did Luther say? The first thesis of the 95 thesis is when Jesus said repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he meant for the entirety of the Christian life to be one of repentance. Not just that to enter into the kingdom. He means your day to day, moment by moment. Repentance is normal for the Christian. Not the person who sinned and then we call the elders and we go, we got to repent. No, repentance, when we're not repenting, something's wrong. Repentance is the normal Christian life. And maybe then we will see that this is the key to treating people the way we want to be treated, conforming our lives to the very word of God. This is the summary of the law and prophets actually being doers of the word of God. That we see that the Holy Spirit is the main character. He's the main player in every one of our interactions, in all of life, as we do life together. How is it with our prayer life? Let's pray. Father, I feel at the end of this, all I can say is teach us to pray. Teach us to have a vision that the gift of prayer is a means of calling down kingdom power into our lives that you have promised, you've said we participate in the divine nature, and how we, do we participate in the nature of Jesus, the word who has become flesh, is we do so through prayer. You promise to give us the spirit to those who ask. Give us a vision for praying in Jesus' name. Amen.